Now, thinking about the end of the world and the second coming can be very scary. And it should be, if you're not ready. If you take pleasure in wickedness and haven't accepted the truth about sin, you will share in the fate of the man of lawlessness. At the second coming, you'll be slain by the breath of Christ, and so will all who have refused to embrace the truth so as to be saved. Paul has just reminded the Thessalonians of that fact in his second letter to them. They had forgotten some important things he had taught them, and as a result, their thinking about the second coming had become muddled, and some unnecessary fears had arisen. Now, at first glance, it might appear that he was feeding their fears with talk about judgment and being slain by the breath of Christ. But he wasn't talking about their future. He was talking about the future of those who were persecuting them. The young church was dealing with the effects of lawlessness all around them, and it was confusing them. They had assumed that their coming to Christ would make things better, that it would make life easier. And when it didn't, they were shocked, so much so that they had become convinced they had been abandoned that they had somehow missed out on the coming of Christ. Well, Paul sought to address their fears by assuring them that God knew what they were going through and that he would one day bring judgment against those who were persecuting them. God was still in control. And in spite of the struggles they were facing, Paul wanted them to know that they were a beloved church. Picking up our study in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now, obviously, Paul wasn't talking about the believers in Thessalonica when he spoke of those who would be judged by God for not believing the truth. They had believed it. They had fallen in love with the truth and had embraced it. They had expressed faith in the truth of the gospel proclaimed by Paul and his associates. They had been saved from the judgment that would come at the second coming upon those who did not believe the truth. And for that, Paul would always give thanks. The believers in Thessalonica had been sanctified by the Spirit, set apart as belonging to God because of their faith in the truth. And that meant Paul and the Thessalonians were now family mutually beloved by their heavenly Father. And Paul wanted to make sure the Thessalonians knew for certain that they were loved by the Lord. That in spite of the struggles they were facing, God loved them. And he assured them of God's love 
by saying something that should have sealed the deal. He said they were chosen by God. Now, knowing that you've been chosen is a strong affirmation of being loved. If someone chooses you, you know they wanted you. They saw something in you they liked and therefore wanted to enter into a relationship with you. You didn't initiate the relationship. They did. They chose you. And being chosen by someone makes you feel good. And knowing that God chose you makes you feel really good about your relationship with Him. That's why the Bible consistently points out that those who have come to God have been chosen by God. That He reached out to us long before we reached out to Him. In fact, it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us, making it possible for us to come into the presence of a holy God. God initiated a relationship with mankind, and that tells of His love for us. But He did more than just reach out to mankind as a whole. He reached out to us individually. When Paul told the Thessalonians that God had chosen them from the beginning for salvation, he was talking to them specifically. He was talking to the individuals who had received his letter. If they were part of the church to which his letter had been addressed, they should have found comfort and assurance in the fact that God had chosen them from the beginning for salvation. Now, what is meant by the beginning is debated. Some suggest Paul is referring to his arrival in Thessalonica. That when he arrived, God had already chosen who would respond to his message. That God had already determined who would respond to the message of salvation that Paul had come to town to deliver. And that may very well be true. But that understanding of the beginning doesn't go back far enough. And we have to determine what is meant by determined. Let's begin with the beginning. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Before the foundation of the world. That is the beginning. Even before He created the world, God chose us to belong to Him. So, how did He choose us? How did he determine who would be saved? Now, some would suggest that he did it arbitrarily. He is God, and he can do whatever he wants. And the Scriptures do make it clear 
that God can do whatever He wants. That He is indeed sovereign. He is creator. And that which He creates has no right to question how or why He was made. The pot has no right to question the potter. However, several passages that speak of our being called also mentions something that apparently plays a role in that call. They mention the foreknowledge of God. In Romans 8, 28 through 30, we read, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. In 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure." Now, I know we've opened a can of worms with foreknowledge and predestination. And we can't begin to answer all the questions that this raises. How the sovereignty of God and the free will of man can be reconciled has been debated for thousands of years. However, Simply injecting God's foreknowledge into the equation can give some degree of understanding to the choices He has made. Without violating our free will, or even necessarily knowing everything we might do in life, limiting His knowledge of some aspects of the future so He can experience Firsthand, our walk of faith with Him, God can and apparently does know who will respond positively to His offer of salvation. It's a big sentence, a lot of stuff in it. Get a copy of it, go home and meditate on it. <laughs> God has known from the very beginning who would belong to Him. Now, I realize this is mind-boggling for us, but it's no big deal for the mind of God. God knows who will have faith in the truth when it's presented to them. And He therefore knows who will be set apart as belonging to Him, who will be sanctified by His Spirit. Those He chooses and those He calls. Verses 14 and 15. And it was for this that He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. God chooses those He knows will respond to His call, and then He calls them. And how does God call them? How does God call us? Well, some would claim they heard the call of God through a still, small voice inside their head. Others say they have been called through a dream or a vision or an audible voice. It's not my place to challenge their experience or to limit how God might call someone to Himself. But Paul does make it clear that God had called the believers in Thessalonica through the preaching of the Gospel. The good news He had delivered to them. And that is the primary means of delivering God's call. That's the way it was delivered on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 2, 22-24, we read of the Gospel being proclaimed for the very first time. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Peter then got very pointed in his presentation. And the people responded, continuing in verses 36 to 39 and 41. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people responded to the call of God issued through the initial proclamation of the gospel. And that's the way those chosen by God in Thessalonica had been called. They heard the truth. They fell in love with the truth. And they responded to the truth as God knew they would. There was no reason for the Thessalonians to doubt their standing before God. He had chosen them and called them and they had responded to His call. Therefore, Paul encouraged them to stand firm and hold to what they had been taught. To hold to the traditions, the beliefs and practices that had been handed down to them 
both in person and by letter. Some were trying to deceive them, claiming to have additional teachings or letters from the apostles that called into question what they had been taught. Paul told them not to be shaken from their composure, their confidence in what they knew to be true. And that they wouldn't be if they would simply stand firm on what they had been taught. The gospel had been proclaimed in their midst and they had received it as God had known they would. There was no need for them to doubt God's love for them. But Paul was telling them, should comfort and strengthen them, because the comfort and strength he was offering was actually coming from the God who chose them and called them. It was coming from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God the Father. Verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. There should be no doubt about the unconditional love of God. He loved us while we were yet sinners. So He won't stop loving us even when we sin. Now, that's not to say He will turn a blind eye to sin and accept us on our terms those who refuse to believe the truth because they take pleasure in wickedness and don't want to give it up will share in the man of lawlessness's fate. Paul has made that perfectly clear. God will eternally condemn those who live lawless lives even if they have done good works and have named the name of Jesus. Jesus made that very clear, that not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. To those who practice lawlessness, he will say, depart from me. To the assumption that we can continue in sin and that grace will correspondingly increase, Paul said, may it never be. Or as it's translated in King James, God forbid. God will judge sin. And he will condemn unrepentant sinners. He's done it before. And he'll do it again. The Apostle Peter makes that clear in his second letter, chapter 3. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, 
It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. The present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking to them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest, being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, I hadn't planned on reading that entire chapter to you. I had given Chad just a few verses, and then I called him and said, Sorry, I've got to put the whole thing in there. And he was gracious. Thank you, Chad. (laughs) This isn't the passage we're studying this morning. But it does correspond beautifully with what Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2. It affirms what he said and his authority to say it. The initial reason I turned to 1 Peter 3 was to make the point that it's not God's wish that any perish, but that all come to repentance. That we must never assume that because God chose to save us, He has chosen to damn others. It's not His will that any go to hell. But, contrary to what He wants, many will. Paul had made it clear to the Thessalonians that those who were persecuting them would be judged for doing so. 
And if they didn't repent of their behavior, they would share the fate of the man of lawlessness. The Thessalonian believers, however, had nothing to fear. And they should have found comfort in what they had been promised in spite of the difficulties they were going through. The Lord Jesus Christ and God their Father had given them eternal comfort and hope. What they were suffering was temporary at best or at worst. Eternal comfort would be there. The hope that had given them, that had been given to them, was good hope. It was secure. It had been secured by the grace of God. Being reminded of that would surely comfort them in the midst of trials and give them the strength to say and do what needed to be said and done. They were a beloved church. God had chosen them and had called them to Himself. And He would comfort and strengthen them if they would but remember what Paul had taught them. Now, as Peter noted, some of what Paul had to say was hard to understand. And it was made even harder to understand when unprincipled men intentionally distorted it. But the Thessalonians would never be shaken, never fall from their steadfast faith if they would just remember that God loved them and that they had been taught and had embraced the truth. And while we may never fully understand everything the Apostle Paul said, of this we can be certain. We are loved. And we have been redeemed. We may not have a perfect understanding of everything, especially everything related to the second coming. But this we do know. We are loved by the Lord Jesus Christ and by our Heavenly Father. And we therefore don't fear the second coming. We long for it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's celebrate our standing before God this morning.